Chapter Ten of An Amiable Charlatan. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Asterix. An Amiable Charlatan by E. Phillips Oppenheim. Chapter Ten. A BROKEN PARTNERSHIP By what certainly seemed to be at the time a stroke of evil fortune, I invited Mrs. Bundercombe and Eve to lunch with me at Prince's Restaurant a few days after our return from the country. Mrs. Bundercombe was graciously pleased to accept my invitation, but she did not think it necessary to alter in any way her usual style of dress for the occasion. We sailed into Prince's, therefore, Eve charming in a lemon-coloured foulard dress and a black toque, Mrs. Bundercombe in an Okata dressmaker's conception of a tailor-made gown in some hard steel-ray material, and a hat whose imperfections were, perhaps mercifully, hidden by a veil, which, instead of providing a really reasonable excuse for its existence, by concealing some portion of Mrs. Bundercombe's features, streamed down behind her nearly to her feet. The maitre d'hôtel who welcomed me and showed to our table found his little flow of small talk arrested by that first glimpse of our companion. He accepted my orders in a chastened manner, and I noticed his eyes straying every now and then, as though in fearsome fascination, to Mrs. Bundercombe, who was sitting very upright at the table with her bony fingers stretched out and a good deal of gold showing in her teeth as she talked with eve in a high nasal voice concerning the absurd food invariably offered in english restaurants then suddenly her flow of language ceased the bombshell fell mrs bundercombe's face became unlike anything i have ever seen or dreamed of even Eve's eyes were round, and her expression dubious. I turned my head. Some three tables away, Mr. Bundercombe was lunching with a young lady, a stranger to us all. She was not only a stranger to us all, but, though she was remarkably good-looking, there were indications that she scarcely belonged to our world. All three of us remained silent for a moment. Then I coughed and took up the wine-list. "'What should you like to drink, Mrs. Bundercombe?' I asked, in attempted unconcern. Mrs. Bundercombe adjusted her spectacles severely, and transferred her regard to me. I felt somehow as though I were back at school, and had been discovered in some ignominious escapade. "'You are aware, Paul,' she replied, "'that I drink nothing save a glass of hot water after my meal. The subject of drink does not interest me.' I appeal to you now, as a future member of the family, fetch Mr. Bundercombe here. I shook my head. Mrs. Bundercombe, I said, leaning over the table, your husband, during his stay in London, plunged freely into the bohemian life of our city. I will answer for it that he did so simply in pursuance of that hobby of which we all know. I am convinced. Paul, Mrs. Bundercombe interrupted, her voice, if possible, a little more nasal even than usual, 
will you fetch mr bundercombe here or must i rise from my seat in a public place and remove him myself from from that hussy i appealed to eve eve i begged please reason with your stepmother there are certain situations in life that can be faced in one way only mrs bundercombe will no doubt have a few words to say to her husband on his return let her keep them until then paul is right eve declared do take our advice she continued turning to her stepmother let us eat our luncheon quite calmly i am perfectly certain dad will have some very good reason to give for his presence here with that young lady mrs bundercombe rose to her feet i hastened to follow her example we stood confronting one another it is either you or i paul she insisted then it had better be myself i groaned i deposited my napkin on the table and made my way towards mr bundercombe i smiled pleasantly at him and bowed apologetically towards his companion sorry i said under my breath but i am afraid mrs bundercombe means to make trouble mr bundercombe looked at me with a gloriously blank expression his manner was not without dignity i regret to hear he replied that any person by the name of mrs bundercombe is looking for trouble i scarcely see however how i am concerned in the matter you have the advantage of me sir i stared at him and stooped a little lower she's tearing mad i whispered you don't want a scene couldn't you make an excuse and slip away mr bundercombe frowned at me he glanced at the young lady as though seeking for some explanation is this young gentleman known to you miss blanche he inquired she set down her glass and shook her head never saw him before in my life she declared what's worrying him hitherto mr bundercombe said my somewhat unusual personal appearance has kept me from an adventure of this sort but i clearly understand that i am now being mistaken for someone else your reference to a mrs bundercombe sir are greek to me my name is parker mr joseph h parker do you mean to keep this up i protested mr bundercombe beckoned to the maitre d'hotel who came hastily to his side do you know this gentleman the maitre d'hotel bowed certainly sir he answered with a questioning glance towards me this is mr walmsley then will you take mr walmsley back to his place mr bundercombe begged he persists in mistaking me for someone else i'm not complaining mind he added affably no complaint whatever i am quite sure the young gentleman is genuinely mistaken and does not mean to be in any way offensive only my digestion is not what it should be and these little contretemps in the middle of luncheon are disturbing run away sir please he concluded waving his hand toward me the maitre d'hotel looked at me and i looked at the maitre d'hotel then i glanced at mr bundercombe who remained quite unruffled finally i bowed slightly toward the young lady and returned to my place 
Well, Mrs. Bundercombe snapped. It seems, I said, that we were mistaken. That isn't Mr. Bundercombe at all. Mrs. Bundercombe's face was a study. Is this a jest? she demanded severely. I wish it were, I replied. Anyhow, Mrs. Bundercombe, you must really excuse me, but there is nothing more I can do. The gentleman whom I addressed insisted upon it that his name was Mr. Joseph H. Parker. No doubt he was right. These likenesses are sometimes very deceptive, I added feebly. Mrs. Bundercombe rose to her feet. I made no effort to stop her. In fact, her action filled me with pleasurable anticipations. She walked across to the table at which Mr. Bundercombe was seated. Eve and I both turned in our places to watch. Poor Daddy, Eve murmured under her breath. Why couldn't he have chosen a smaller restaurant? He's going to catch it now. I think I'll back your father, I observed. He is quite at his best this morning. The exact words that passed between Mr. Bundercombe and his wife we, alas, never knew. She turned her left shoulder pointedly toward the young woman, whom she had designated as a hussy, and talked steadily for about a minute and a half at Mr. Bundercombe. The history of what followed was reflected in that gentleman's expressive face. He appeared to listen, at first in amazement, afterward in annoyance, and finally in downright anger. When at last he spoke, we heard the words distinctly. Madam, he said, I don't know who you are, and I object to being addressed in a public place by ladies who are strangers to me. Be so good as to return to your seat. You are mistaking me for someone else. My name is Joseph H. Parker. For a lady who had won renown upon the platform as a debater, Mrs. Bundercombe seemed afflicted with considerable difficulty in framing a suitable reply, and while she was still a little incoherent, Mr. Bundercombe softly summoned the maitre d'hôtel. It may have been my fancy, but I certainly thought I saw a sovereign slipped into the hand of the latter. Charles, Mr. Bundercombe confided, my luncheon is being spoiled by people who mistake me for a gentleman who, I believe, does bear a singular resemblance to me. My name is Parker. This lady insists upon addressing me as Mr. Bundercombe. I do not wish to make a disturbance, but I insist upon it that you conduct this lady to her place and see that I am not disturbed any more. The maître d'hôtel's attitude was unmistakable. Within the course of a few seconds, Mrs. Bundercombe was restored to us. I thought it best to ignore the whole matter, and plunged at once into a discussion of gastronomic matters. I have ordered, I began, some Maryland chicken. Then you can eat it, Mrs. Bundercombe snapped. Not a mouthful of food do I take in this place, with that painted hussy sitting by Joseph's side a few feet away. Oh, I'll fix him when I get him home. She drew a little breath between her teeth, but she was as good as her word. She refused all food and sat with her arms folded, glaring across at Mr. Bundercombe's table. My admiration for that man of genius was never greater than on that day. So far from hurrying over his luncheon, he seemed inclined to prolong it. There was no lack of conversation between him and his companion. They even lingered over their coffee, and they were still at the table when Eve and I had finished, and Mrs. Bundercombe was sipping the hot water. 
the only thing that passed her lips during the entire meal. I paid the bill and rose. Mrs. Bundercombe, after a moment's hesitation, followed us. Even I thought of going into the academy for a few minutes, I said tentatively, as we reached the entrance hall. Mrs. Bundercombe plumped herself down on a high-backed chair within a yard of the door. I, she announced, shall wait here for Joseph. I realized the futility of any attempt to dissuade her, so we left her there, spent an hour at the academy, and did a little shopping. On our way back, an idea occurred to me. We re-entered the restaurant. Mrs. Bundercombe was still sitting there in a corner of the hall. "'Thinks he can tie me out, perhaps,' she remarked in an explanatory manner. "'Well, he just can't, that's all.' I moved a few steps further in and glanced down the restaurant. Then I returned. "'But, my dear Mrs. Bundercombe,' I said, "'your husband has gone long ago. "'He went out the other way. "'I am not sure, but I believe we saw him in Bond Street "'quite three-quarters of an hour ago.' "'There is another way out?' Mrs. Bundercombe asked hastily. "'Certainly there is,' I told her. "'Into German Street.' "'Why was I not told?' she demanded, rising unwillingly to her feet. "'Really,' I assured her, "'I didn't think of it.' She followed us out. We all walked down Piccadilly. "'Will you please,' she said, "'direct me to a tea-shop?' I pointed one out to her. She left us without a word of farewell. Eve and I turned down into the haymarket. "'Nice example your parents are setting us,' I remarked. Eve sighed. "'I wish I knew what Dad was up to,' she murmured. At that moment we met him. He came strolling along, his silk hat a little on the back of his head, a cigar in his mouth, his hands grasping his cane behind his back. "'Bundercombe or Parker?' I inquired, as we came to a standstill on the pavement. He grinned. "'Nasty business, that,' he remarked cheerfully. "'Why don't you keep to the Ritz or the Berkeley?' "'Anyway,' he added, his tone changing, "'I'm glad I met you, Paul. I want your help in a little matter.' I shook my head. "'Quite out of the question,' I declared emphatically. "'Don't forget that Paul is an MP, Dad.' Eve said severely. You mustn't attempt to bring him into any of your little affairs. On this occasion, Mr. Bundercombe expostulated, I am on the side of the law. Mr. Cullen, whom I am probably going to see presently, will be my brother-in-arms. What do you need me for, then? I asked. As to absolutely needing you, perhaps I don't. Mr. Bundercombe admitted on the other hand it's a very interesting little affair and one in which you could take a hand without compromising yourself what about eve i inquired not this time mr bundercombe replied the only risk there is about the affair he explained is that it is just possible there may be a bit of a scrap what's the program i asked tonight at home at ten o'clock can you manage it rather i answered if eve doesn't mind this is the night you promised to go with your mother to a lecture somewhere isn't it i reminded her she nodded very well she consented resignedly so long as you don't let him get hurt dad no fear of that mr bundercombe declared cheerfully if they go for anyone they'll go for me 
So long, young people. At ten o'clock, Paul. At precisely the hour agreed upon that evening, I presented myself at Mr. Bundercombe's house in Prince's Gardens. I noticed that the manner of the servant who admitted me was subdued, and there was a peculiar gloom about the place. Very few lights were lit, and the farther portion of the house, of which one could catch a glimpse from the little circular hall, seemed entirely deserted. I was shown at once into Mr. Bundercombe's study upon the ground floor. Mr. Bundercombe was seated at a writing-table, with his face toward the door. He greeted me with a friendly nod, and pointed to a little table upon which stood an abundant display of cigars and cigarettes of all brands. I helped myself, and lit a cigarette. "'May I know something of this evening's programme?' I asked. "'Spoil a whole show?' Mr. Bundercombe objected earnestly. Just play the part of assistant audience, and stick this into your pocket, will you? He threw toward me a very small revolver that he had produced from a drawer. Only the last three chambers are loaded, he remarked. You'll have to click three times if you do use it. I don't think you'll need to, though. Take a stall and watch the fun. I'll tell you only this. You remember Bone Stanley? as he was called in those days, the man who was sent to prison for fifteen years for bank robbery and for shooting the manager? Down Hammersmith way it was. The fellow was an American. I remember it quite well, I assented. He was tried for murder and convicted of manslaughter. Mr. Bundercombe nodded. He was released this afternoon. He'll be here in a few minutes. Here? I exclaimed. Mr. Bundercombe nodded, but did not offer any further explanation. Covered with a certain gravity of expression, he had the appearance of a schoolboy for whom a feast was being set out. Quite a pleasant little evening we're going to have, he promised. You wait. I frowned a little uneasily. You are quite sure you're not letting me in for— Mr. Bundercombe plunged into the middle of my little protest. You're all right, Paul, he assured me. Cullen's in the house at the present moment, and there are two other detectives with him. They are letting me run this thing simply because I know more about it than they do, and for certain reasons I am not giving my whole hand away. Don't you worry, Paul. You'll be all right this time. Listen. We heard a very feeble ring at the bell. Mr. Bundercombe nodded. That's Stanley, he whispered. Sit down. A man was shown into the room a moment later. I leaned forward in my chair so as to see more distinctly the hero of one of the most famous cases that had ever been tried in a criminal court. Of his renowned good looks there was little left. He stood there, still tall, with high cheekbones, furtive eyes, and a long mouth. He wore good clothes, his linen was irreproachable, and he kept his gloves on. Nevertheless, the stamp of the prison was upon him. Mr. Stanley, Mr. Bundercombe said. Good. I am glad you were prevailed upon to come. I am still wholly in the dark as to what this means, the newcomer remarked. I'll tell you in a very few sentences, Mr. Bundercombe promised. Will you sit down? I prefer to stand, Stanley replied until I know exactly in whose house I am, and what your interest in me is. 
Very well, Mr. Bundercombe agreed. Here is my history. My name is Joseph H. Bundercombe. I am an American manufacturer. I have made a fortune in manufacturing Bundercombe's reaping machines. You may call it a hobby, if you like, but I have always been interested in criminals and criminal methods, not the lowest type, but men who have pitted their brains against others and robbed them. As soon as I arrived in this country, I found an interest in inquiring about the identities of American criminals imprisoned over here, with a view to helping any deserving cases. Your name came before me. I studied your case. I became interested in it. I learned that your time was almost up. A chance inquiry revealed to me a state of things that I determined to bring before your knowledge. You sent me a telegram. Mr. Stanley interrupted as I was stepping on the steamer at Southampton. I have returned to London for your explanation. You will probably, Mr. Bundercombe remarked genially, be thankful all your life that you did. Now listen. Who is this person? Mr. Stanley asked, indicating me. He is my prospective son-in-law, Mr. Paul Walmsley, Mr. Bundercombe explained, a member of Parliament. I have asked him to be present because I may need a little support, and also because it may help to convince you that I am in earnest. Twenty years ago, Mr. Stanley, you came to the conclusion that honest methods were of little use to anyone seeking to make a large fortune. You joined with two other men, Richard Densmore and Philip Harding, in a series of semi-criminal conspiracies. You pulled all your money. You had the most, and you determined that if you could not make a living honestly, you would rob those with less brains than yourself. When half your capital was gone, this Hammersmith bank robbery was planned, and took place. You were the only one caught, and you held your tongue like a man. But, all the same, you were used as a cat's paw. In what way? Stanley asked softly. You all three had revolvers. You all three arranged that they should be uncharged. Cartridges were put into yours without your knowledge. You held up your revolver and pressed the trigger, believing it to be empty. The others knew better. You shot the bank manager, and in the stupefaction that followed, you became an easy captive. The others escaped. Stanley moved a little on his feet. His lips were slightly parted his eyes fixed upon Mr. Bundercombe. "'What story is this you're telling me?' he muttered. "'A true one,' Mr. Bundercombe continued. "'Now listen. The total amount in possession of your two confederates when you went in a prison was under a thousand pounds. You heard from them periodically as struggling paupers. Harding met you out of prison. He was almost in rags. They were at the end of their resources,' he told you. He gave you a hundred pounds, to procure which, he assured you with tears in his eyes, they had almost beggared themselves. It was to enable you to leave the country and make a fresh start. You were even grateful. You shook him by the hand. You left him at the hotel at Southampton only an hour before you got my telegram. What of it? Stanley asked. Nothing except this. Mr. Bundercombe concluded. Your two partners were so scared at the result of the Hammersmith affair, 
and at your sentence that they turned over a new leaf. They went into business as outside stockbrokers with your capital. The agreement as to a third profits was still in force. They had what I can describe only as the devil's own luck. I should say their total capital today is at least fifty thousand pounds. The time came for you to be released. They had no idea of parting with a third of their money and taking you into the business. All the time they had deceived you. They continued the deception. Harding met you as a poor man. But for me, you would have been on your way to South Africa by this time, with a hundred pounds in your pocket. Is what you're telling me the truth? Stanley demanded. Absolutely, Mr. Bundercombe declared. I stumbled across the truth in making inquiries concerning you and your probable future. I had meant, as a matter of fact, to put up a little money of my own to give you a fresh start. In the course of these inquiries, I happened to run across a young woman who had been a typist in Harding's office. It was from her I learned the truth. As he rose in the world, Harding seems to have treated the girl badly. A little kindness and a little attention on my part, and I learned the truth. She placed me in possession of the whole story after we had lunch together today. Stanley at last took the chair he had so long refused. He sat with his arms folded. And I kept my mouth closed, he muttered. It was their job. I would no more have pulled the trigger on my revolver than I would have shot myself, if I had known. It was they who put the cartridges there. He sat for a moment, quite still. Mr. Bundercombe rang the bell. The gentleman I am expecting, he said, will be here in a moment. You can show them in directly they arrive. The man bowed and withdrew. Mr. Bundercombe turned to his visitor. I have made the acquaintance, he continued, of these two men, your late partners, sought them out and made it purposely. They are coming here to see me tonight. They fancy that it is just a friendly call. They know that I have money to invest. I have even made use of them, employing them to buy for me bonds of my own choosing. They think it is an affair of a little business chat, perhaps, and a restaurant supper. Pull yourself together, Stanley. Go into that corner behind the curtain. Wait your time. Stanley rose slowly to his feet. His face was drawn as though with pain. It isn't so much the money, he muttered. Only I thought, I fancied, they would have been there to meet me, to shake me by the hand, to stay with me, and they wanted to push me off out of the country. He opened his lips a little wider and swore, softly but vindictively. Then the bell rang. Mr. Bundercombe hastened to push him out of sight. We heard the sound of strange voices in the hall. When the door was opened, it was obvious that the whole house was lit up. From somewhere in the distance came the soft music of a piano. Mr. Harding and Mr. Densmore were announced. I looked at them curiously. They were both most correctly dressed in evening clothes. They both had somehow the hard expression of worldly men, tempered not altogether pleasantly by symptoms of good living. They greeted Mr. Bundercombe with bluff heartiness. 
he gave them each a hand. Now, my friends, he said, welcome to my house. Paul, he added, turning to me, let me introduce my two friends, Mr. Harding and Mr. Densmore, Mr. Paul Walmsley. Mr. Walmsley has just been returned for the Western Division of Bedfordshire. They greeted me with more than affability. Mr. Harding assured me he had read my speeches. Mr. Densmore thought no one was more to be envied than a man who had the gifts that secured for him a seat in Parliament. It's early yet, Mr. Bundercombe declared genially. Let's sit down. Tell me a little about English business. It interests me. You bought those Chilean bonds all right, I see. They are up an eighth tonight. A good purchase, Mr. Bundercombe, Mr. Harding assured him. A very good purchase. After all, though, there's not much money to be made out of those government things. Now we've a little affair of our own. What do you say, Densmore? He broke off, looking toward his partner. We could afford to let Mr. Bundercombe come in a little way with us, I think. Mr. Densmore nodded. Not more than five, he said warningly. Remember what you promised the Rothschild people. Mr. Harding nodded and crossed his knees. He lit a cigar from the box Mr. Bundercombe passed round. This sounds interesting, the latter remarked. I dare say Mr. Walmsley, too, has a little spare money for investment. Mr. Densmore sighed, though his eyes were brightening. It's too good a thing, he explained confidentially, to let the world into. Between ourselves there's a fortune in it, and we want to keep it among our friends. He drew a dummy prospectus from his vest pocket and began a long-winded recital of some figures in which I was not particularly interested. Mr. Bundercombe, however, appeared to be greatly impressed by what he heard. Gentlemen, he said, there's just one thing. American business methods and English are different in one respect. In my country, we've got a sort of official guide that tells us exactly whom we're dealing with and what their means are. Now, I know you are good fellows, and it seems to me I'll be glad to go into this little affair with you. But we are strangers financially, aren't we? Now, if you were Americans, I should say to you, what's your rating? And you'd tell me, because you'd know that I could look it up in a business guide in ten minutes. Perfectly sound, Mr. Harding admitted. Perfectly. Neither my partner nor I have anything to conceal. Last Christmas we were worth just over £60,000, and since then we've made a bit. You've no other partner? Mr. Bundercombe inquired. Certainly not, Mr. Harding replied. Then what about our friend Stanley? Mr. Bundercombe asked quietly. Almost as he spoke, Stanley walked into the middle of the little group. I have never in the whole course of my life seen two men so thoroughly and entirely amazed. Mr. Harding dropped his cigar on the carpet, where he let it remain. They stared at Stanley as though they were looking upon a ghost. Both men seemed somehow to have lost their confident bearing, seemed to have shrunken into smaller, less assertive, meaner beings. Sixty thousand pounds, Mr. Bundercombe went on one-third of which belongs to Stanley here. Absurd, Harding faltered. 
"'Nothing, nothing of the sort,' Densmore declared. Mr. Bundercombe very carefully lit another cigar. Then he rang the bell. Harding rose to his feet. He was not looking in the least like the sleek, opulent gentleman who had entered the room a few minutes before. "'What's that for?' he demanded, pointing to the bell. The door was already open. Mr. Bundercombe indicated the young lady who stood upon the threshold, the lady with whom he had been lunching that day at Prince's. "'I only wish to have the pleasure,' Mr. Bundercombe explained, "'of presenting you two gentlemen, Mr. Harding especially, to this young lady.' "'Blanche!' Mr. Harding exclaimed. Mr. Densmore muttered something under his breath. "'My dear Miss Blanche,' said Mr. Bundercombe, moving toward the door, "'I will not ask you to stay, as our interview is scarcely, perhaps, a pleasant one. I simply wished you to show yourself so that Mr. Harding and his friend might understand how useless certain denials on their part would be. My servant will now place you in a taxi, and if you will do me the honor of calling here at eleven o'clock tomorrow morning, I think I can promise you a satisfactory termination to this little affair. The girl patted him on the shoulder. That's all right, Bundy, she declared. I hope you'll take me out to lunch again. As for him, she added, her eyebrows coming together and looking towards Harding, perhaps he'll understand now how well it pays to be a liar. She turned round and left the room amid a stricken silence. Mr. Bundercombe came back to his place. Gentlemen, he said, I will be brief with you. It has given me the utmost pleasure to arrange this little meeting on behalf of my friend Mr. Stanley. In the room on the other side of the passage is waiting my lawyer, who will draw up a renewal of your partnership deed with Mr. Stanley upon terms that we can discuss amicably. In the room behind this is waiting a particular friend of mine, Mr. Cullen, a detective. Remember, Mr. Bundercombe added, his voice suddenly very stern and threatening, that through all the years that man, your rightful partner, has been in prison, through all the agony of his trial, the humiliation of his sentence, the name of neither one of you has passed his lips. Is it your wish that the truth shall now be told? They shrank back. Harding was pale at the lips. Densmore was shivering. Very well, gentlemen, Mr. Bundercombe concluded. If I send for the lawyer, Mr. Cullen can go. If you choose Mr. Cullen, the lawyer can go. Mr. Harding moistened his lips with his tongue. We will make an arrangement, he said. We have been wrong. Now that I see you here, Stanley, he continued, looking up with the first show of courage either of them had exhibited, I am ashamed. It was a dirty trick. Forget it. After you were lagged, we decided to turn over a new leaf and be honest. We've been honest, inside the law, at any rate, and we've made money. Come and take your share of it and forgive. We were brutes, Densmore agreed. They were both bending over Stanley. Somehow or other, his hand stole out to them. Mr. Bundercombe and I strolled outside. You might tell Mr. Cullen that we shall not require him this evening, Mr. Bundercombe instructed the butler. Bring a bottle of champagne and tell the gentleman from Wyman's and Wyman's and his clerk 
that we shall be ready for them in ten minutes. End of section 11, which is chapter 10.